So we're going to continue in Luke 12. I hope you took note of the questions. They'll be up there for as long as Dick will allow them to be. Um, and uh, if you guys know, we're going to be in verses 4 through 7 this morning. Um, the subject, if you've looked ahead, is on the fear of man versus the fear of, of God. Now, I want to tell you straight off that the things that we've been discussing the last couple of weeks, uh, hypocrisy and, and legalism, these things are linked. They, they are coming together, and Jesus wants us to see the link between the, the legalism and the hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees and, and then the fear of man. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. The, the, one of the problems of, with, with legalists is that they fear man over God. They care more about looking good externally to impress someone more than it is to honor and glorify God. If you fear man more than you fear God, then your religion is hypocritical. So Jesus turns to this topic to his disciples as he was speaking to his disciples last week. And he turns and he speaks to them in this, in this context. But there's, there's more as well, I think, in, in the context of this, of this passage, and, and that is persecution and suffering. In, in, in a sense, in, in the, the, the taking and feeling of persecution and, and suffering, that you're not, to, you're not to be a hypocrite in that as well as you receive those things. In a sense, this persecution and suffering that he kind of tells us here is what exposes hypocrisy. You see, the disciples were, were about to experience firsthand the temptation to fear man and to fear what man can do to them. And, and this is what Jesus is encouraging them by, warning them of. You know, by the time that the Gospel of Luke was written, about two decades later, the Christians of the day would have read this. They would have read this passage, and, and I think that they would have known very personally, very personally, the type of persecution that Jesus was referring to. Jesus was preparing his disciples. They were going to face it. And reading, reading Luke's Gospel, they were facing the intense fear of man, especially in, in the form of persecution, threat, and even death. Now looking at Luke 12, let's read it. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you, whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs of your head are still numbered? Fear not. You are more value than many sparrows. This is the word of the Lord. 
And may His Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see and to hear His holy, inspired, inerrant Word for His glory and for our joy. Amen. So fear. What a, what a great topic. <laughs> what, a, what a great lesson that Jesus gives us here on fear. This is the kind of fear that it's like the leaven of the Pharisees. It, it can spread. And it spreads through, through persecution. This fear isn't a fear of catastrophes. It's not a fear of storms or diseases or sicknesses. It's not a fear of accidents or bears or sharks. Those are not the fears that Jesus is talking about. The fear that Jesus is talking about is the fear of man. The fear that men can do. And what man can do versus the fear of God. Now, the point here was I think Jesus was encouraging his disciples. But in that encouragement, you see some exhortation. You see some, some, some warning, too. He even says that, but I warn you. And the reason is, is so that they wouldn't be crippled by the fear of what others can do to them. But just because you have professed faith in Christ and because you've trusted Christ and you follow Christ and you've been baptized in Christ, don't fear them. Don't fear what they can do to you. The most important fear that Jesus is telling us to not fear is the fear of man. He's not telling us to be fearful of bears or sharks, things that we think are what we are most afraid of and what we most deal with, but I think Jesus is really digging down deep into the heart of man the greatest fear that we deal with on a daily basis is the fear of man. A universal problem. To be human is to have fear. Rational or irrational. But especially fear of man. We desperately care about what others think about us. That's what we talked about. That's what drives us into hypocrisy. Because we know we're, we're really this, but we don't want people to look down on us for what we do. Fear is a universal problem. We care what other people think about us. We care about what they can do to us or what they can say to us or how they can expose us. It is such a part of our human fabric that we really need to check our pulse if we're denying it. When I was a teenager, we used to call the fear of man peer pressure. When you get older, it's called people-pleasing. But now, labels and experts of such things have called it codependency. And codependency means you are dependent for your happiness upon how other people love you, or if they love you, or if they give you the recognition. In every one of those labels, peer pressure, people-pleasing, codependency, you'll, you'll always see the fear of man. It's always about what other people think of me and how that satisfies me or makes me whole. Here in the United States, we're on the tail end of this revolution of addressing the issues of codependency. And there are scores of books out there addressing the problem. Go to Books Million, you'll find a million. And even in our secular world today, there, 
they can see that there's a problem here. That, that codependency isn't a, necessarily a good thing because of what it drives us to do. The self-destructive nature that it drives us to do. And in their books, they address the problem, and they use their secular garments to dress it up. But often, the end prescription by these books that issues from codependency, their prescription is to, you need to love yourself more. Now, which in quote, of course, when has that ever worked? When has that ever solved our problems? In fact, it's the very source, isn't it? We have a love-yourself problem. Now, the popular Christian response to codependency, they've given one too, and it's not as shallow as the secular response. In fact, it gives a greater treatment for the problem, and that is to to know that God loves you more than you think? That's a pretty good answer. To to know that God loves you more than you think. That He can can fill you with love so you don't have to be filled by other people. You don't have to be codependent. Now this certainly sounds better. Certainly much better than the world's response. And in our ears, it it sounds right. But oftentimes, in the Christian culture, it has become very incomplete. Very incomplete. The love of God is a good answer to many things. And I often tell you, dwell upon the love of God over your life. But sometimes we can use it in such a way that it's shallow and watered down and it misses the rich truth. Because sometimes the way that you'd say, the Lord loves you, is different from the way that someone else would perceive that God loves them. It's not often the same time, same thing. Because we understand that God loves us because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done. And so this missing the truth that waters down the, the love of God is pervasive throughout our culture. Popular Christian music, media, books are filled with this, where, where the love of God is used so generically And what happens is, it ends up accomplishing the same thing that the worldly response does. We take the love of God and we make it about us. That that God loves me so that I will feel better about myself. That ignores many things. The the watered-down response ignores, a lot of times, often, repentance. It ignores sin. I hate to pick on a prosperity preacher, but I can name one, and you guys will know exactly what I'm talking about. They can say, God loves you, and I can say, God loves you, and it means completely different. It can mean completely different things. One ignores sin, and the dealing with sin, and repentance. One, one doesn't consider others to be higher and better than yourselves. The codependency response says that people are there to make me feel good about myself and to accept me as I am and to love me as I am and God as well. So adding even more love of God 
If it's not grounded in the rich truth of the Scripture, it will only allow us to be the center of our world once again. Where, where God will become our psychic errand boy, given the task of inflating our self-esteem. We've called that moral therapeutic deism, which, by the way, we took it from a book from a guy named Christian Smith and some other person wrote this book years ago. Moral therapeutic deism, where God exists to make me happy, to feel good about myself and my circumstances. If you want a good dose of this, I'll even give you a a not-so-good recommendation of a song called Reckless Love. Very much is a good example of this. It doesn't square up with the text. It doesn't square up with these things that Jesus says. Let's dig in deeper to the fear of man, because Jesus is certainly warning of this. Look at verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do to you. So remember, he's, he's talking about persecution that's coming. He's talking about those who can kill your body. Right? And, but what he's doing is, I think he's also encouraging them. Because what he's saying is, is that's all they can do. That's all they can do is, is kill your body. You, you don't have to worry about those who can kill your body. Yeah, they can kill you. There's no debate there. But you don't have to worry about them. Don't fear their persecution, their threats, their accusations, their evil looks toward you. Don't be crippled by that fear. It's not what's ultimate. Now, most of us, we don't know anything about the kind of persecution that early Christians faced. Many of of our brothers and sisters in the world today who are facing persecution, we know very little about. We have brothers and sisters all around the world, Iraq, Syria, Africa, East Asia, other places, who are very much facing real persecution, the real threat on their lives. And they know exactly what Jesus is saying when Jesus says these words to them. You know, I find this striking to me, because a couple of months ago, I I attended a seminar I think it's a seminar, what do you call it, one-night deal, um, for churches and their leadership. And, and it was about um, what happens or what, how, what should be a church's response to prepare or what do they do in light of an active shooter situation, right? And maybe we know now that this seems to be uh, a reality. And so they, they did this, the county put this on, and there was people from the FBI there and some district attorneys and things like that were talking to us and sharing to us the legality of certain things and to have a plan and what do you do and, and all of that. And it's almost like now this is a new reality to us because we're starting to realize, hey, there might be people out there that might try to hurt us. We better have a plan. Now, there's wisdom, of course, in being ready and being, uh, being prepared and being planned out. But how far do we go? How far do we need to go to make sure people cannot kill our bodies? Striking. Jesus is telling us that in the end, those are not the people to be afraid of. That's not what we should fear. Now, the word fear 
in the Bible has a much different sense in, in the way that we um, like to interpret it. It certainly has that, that connotation and definition, but it, it goes a little bit deeper and broader uh, for us. In, in the Bible, um, it, it, it also extends to, to, to someone or something that we are in awe of. That you are in, in awe of. Someone or something that you are being controlled by or mastered by. Something that we are worshiping. Something that we put our trust in. Something that we need. It goes deeper than, the, than, than being terrified or being scared. That's why we can, that's why in our time we can call peer pressure and people pleasing fear of man. Because people pleasing and peer pressure is being in awe of what someone can do to you or say to you or cause you or shape you or control you to do something different that you don't want to do. Let me give you three categories. Three categories of of fear and why we fear what people can do to us and what they can do to us. The first is that we, we, we fear man because we, we fear that people can expose and humiliate us. We fear that people can expose and humiliate us. When I was a kid, I this isn't in my notes, this is free so you can just laugh all you want because you will. Um, when I was a kid, one of my greatest fears was a dream that I had. Now you're like, oh boy, TMI, right? It, well, it'll get there. Um, and, and this dream was, is I was terrified that I, that all, it's like all of a sudden I had this realization that I went to school in my underwear. Right? And no one's laughing. Why aren't you laughing at me? I'm giving you permission to laugh at me. I was terrified. And why? Because I was afraid of being exposed. Like, this is what pe- people are going to see me for who I really am, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not covered anymore. We fear, man, because we fear that we are going to be exposed and we can be humiliated. The reason why we fear that we can be exposed and be humiliated is because deep down we know there are things that we can be humiliated about. That we are sinners. We know something is wrong. Our culture knows there is something wrong. They, they know there's something broken. They just don't call it sin. And, and there's this great fear in the heart of all mankind, of other people, because we don't want to be seen for who, what we really are. Self-esteem, low self-esteem, is a perfect example of this. Because what's, what's low self-esteem? It's, it's really this feeling of shame. And why do we bear shame? Why do we bear shame and guilt? Because we're guilty. We sinners. We do, we do things we know that we are not supposed to do, no matter what the culture says is right. It doesn't matter. We fear man because we are afraid that we will be seen as we really are. And, and it may feel as if other people are doing the exposing. The reality is, is that we're carrying the shame all the time. Other people are just simply the trigger. And our culture now is going against anybody. 
it's, the pendulum has swung way on the other side now. And it doesn't matter who you are. You're all being lopsided or lopped into the same group of guilt. That everyone now is guilty for my sin and for my shame. So do you see the distortion here? We fear what others can expose in us and that it's true. So we're fearing others, what's true, but we do not fear God in whom we've transgressed against. Secondly, we fear other people because they can reject, ridicule, and despise us. So in that humiliation, this is what they can do. Reject us, ridicule, despise us. Three things none of us like. We don't like to be rejected. We know how it feels when we're no longer invited to do things. When we're, when we're ignored, when we know someone doesn't like us anymore, when someone withholds acceptance or love, what happens? We feel worthless. People can do this to us. If you want a living illustration of this, no one show up next week, next Sunday, and you will see one worthless feeling man. Peer pressure fits here, doesn't it? It's what drives us to be a people pleaser. To satisfy them so we don't feel that rejection. We don't want to be rejected, so I'm going to tell them what they want to hear. I'm going to be this certain kind of person so that they won't reject me. Or so that I always will be approved and I'll always be liked. Literally, social media. But ultimately what happens is, when we seek only the approval of, of, of man, what happens is we ultimately become suffocated. It, it suffocates us. The, the tragic reality is, again, we are living for an idol. And when we're living for an, an idol, an idol to be liked and loved by, by others, only leads us into slavery and service to it, and constant slavery and service to it. It's not a love problem, as genuine as it may seem or even feel. It's not a love problem. It's an idolatry problem. John Calvin had it right when he said that the heart of man is an idol factory. We will take even the good things in our lives and make them into idols. Third, we fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. We talked a little bit about the persecution, and the Bible is, is filled with examples of this. I think one of, the, one of the, the good ones is going to be Abraham. And there's a story, I believe it's in Genesis 12, where Abraham gets to Egypt. And Egypt is there with his wife. They don't have kids yet, and this is when they're still kind of young and, you know, young, reckless, and, you know, daring. And they travel, and they're adventurous, and and, and he gets this thing, he sees his wife, and, his, and his, the Bible's clear about it, his wife's hot, right? He knows it, he's like, I'm going to get to Egypt, these dudes are going to like my wife, they're going to kill me so they can get her. So he, he comes up with this great plan, not so great plan actually, to say, Sarah, you, you, you just say that you're my sister, and then they won't kill me. That is not a well thought out plan. Because what happens when they still take her to be his wife, or their wife? Exactly. What was that? Oh, uh, it's KK screaming? Okay. It sounded like a hurt rabbit. Um, so yeah, so he comes up with this great plan. So what drove him to this stupid plan? 
Which, which, by the way, would end up happening. One did actually take, it, take her to be his wife, and then all these terrible things started happening in Egypt. And, and they were like, everything started to happen when you all showed up. What's the deal? And then Abraham's like, uh, that's my wife. And he's like, they're like, why would, you let, why would you let this happen? Get out of here. And they kick him out. You know, Abraham does this again. Genesis chapter 20, he does the same thing again with Abimelech. Doesn't learn from his lesson. Guys, don't do that. Stupid plan. It's not going to work. But why did he do it? He, he feared man. He feared what, what, what they can do, and that fear overtook him. It overtook him and made him to do something manipulative so that he wouldn't be threatened or, or, or killed. And we can talk about over and over again in the Old Testament where, where someone would fear an enemy, that they would be killed, and that they would be overtook. Some of them did the same thing, kind of things that Abraham would do but we're not much different. If we even sense a whiff of threat, ridicule, hostility, whatever it may be, we fear. And a lot of times we try to run from it in a way that's deceptive and manipulative like Abraham did. We're prone to this reality. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is not saying that fear is not a reality, that it's not real, that it's not something that you should never face or never feel or sense. Fear is natural. Since I think it's God-given, right? God gives us a sense of, of fear that when we are threatened, we know how to respond and hopefully survive. When David was threatened by his enemies, he was afraid. But, but this was not the same as being afraid of man. The fear of man is the sinful exaggeration of a normal experience. Fear is normal. It's good. But the fear of man that leads us to do dumb things like what Abraham did is the exaggeration of, of, of a normal experience. It's, it's, it takes our normal fear and twists it and makes it run amok. It controls us. It denies the greater reality of God being God. Being afraid is not sinful. Brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen world. The problem is, is when we experience fear and it leads us to forget God. To forget Him forgets that he is bigger. Again, consider David. If you've ever read some of David's psalms, you would, you would kind of think that David was a bipolar schizophrenic. In the beginning, it's like, God, where are you? What? My life is crashing. Where are you? My life is being destroyed. And it's like, oh, there he is. I love you, Lord. Your steadfast mercies, they last forever. By the end of the psalm, he doesn't forget God, does he? Fear's a reality, but he remembers the Lord. He remembers who protects him. He remembers who his refuge is. He knows the temptation to fear. In fact, I think many of those psalms, we can look at that, that, that he knows what it means to fear. The reality of fear in, in, in this life. 
but also not to forget that God is God. That God is God. And so what all three of these things have in common? They all have in common one huge thing. Seeing people bigger. Seeing people that they are, that they are more powerful and more significant in their life than God. And from that fear, we give others the power and the right to tell us what to feel, what to think, and even to do. That's the fear of man. And, and Jesus is just saying the same thing here in verse 4 again. Yeah, they're big. They're powerful. They can humiliate you. They can slander you. They can expose you. They can ridicule you. They can even kill your body. But that's all they can do. That's it. I mean, there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek going on here. But he leaves us, in, or he shows us something greater, though. And the tongue-in-cheek is because he shows us something greater in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, I will, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And he's quite emphatic here. Now, he is not talking about the devil in verse 5. Some have interpreted this as the devil. No, he's talking about the Lord. So you couldn't be more wrong. And he's talking about the Lord here. The Lord alone. If the Lord wills it. I mean, you can even see that there, the sovereign hand of God in persecution. If the Lord wills it, that man kill you, even then we do not fear. We fear God. We fear the Lord. Because he alone has the authority to cast you into hell. Cast you into hell. Now, not the kind of flowing, long, blonde hair blowing in the wind Jesus that maybe has been pictured to us, huh? But the fear God, the one who can cast you into hell. He talks about the fear of the Lord here because fearing God, because God is in charge of everything and everyone, including your own soul. Including your own soul. So what does Jesus then mean here by fear, fear God? Not really an exp explanation that we're used to getting. It's something that's been pretty much lost, as we've talked about. Um, and again, this is where the Bible is so valuable in, in showing us what Jesus is talking about. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament sums up the, the fear of God as the essence, right, the core, the heart of, of the true religious heart toward God. So at the essence of, of, of true right religion, the, the core of, of, our, of our religion and love and devotion to God is the fear of God. The, the fear of the Lord means reverence, submission, or awe. Sorry, so we're just using the same terminology here, right? Reverence, submission, or awe of His majesty, and that leads us to obedience. It's what we call worship. Fear of the Lord is central to our idea of faith and trust. 
This, this all of, of, of God is what controls us and, and, and moves us. This sense of all is, is hard to explain in this, I think in this culture and climate right now because, because most of our church experiences replace the all of the majesty and glory of God with, with many other things. More electronics and, and technological advancements and great sound and all of these wonderful things have replaced the awe and majesty of God. But also, what's even more deadlier than those things that have replaced the, the fear of God, all has been replaced by good feelings toward oneself and God by a happy face image of God. Fear of God isn't always like terror. Right? Where, where someone would, would, would want to run from him. There's, there's going to be places where that would be. It's, it's not like the, like the scared child who, rides, who, who runs and hides from an abusive drunken father who just got home. That's not the fear of God. That's not this fear. And if, and if your experience in this life is, is something like that, this erratic, unpredictable anger that, that has wreaked havoc on your life, then rest assured that the fear of God is nothing like that. There will be a time, though, where those who are not covered in the righteousness of Christ will come under the righteous wrath of God where Hebrews 10.31 tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in a sense, this verse, is Jesus is letting in, into this, right? Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. Eternal damnation. Fearing God here is somewhat terrifying, yes. And it's, it's terrifying only in the sense because, because it includes this idea that, that uh, we are acknowledging our sinfulness before God. We're acknowledging our sinfulness and we're acknowledging God's moral purity in His holiness. The fear of God very much has a picture, a clear picture of our own, right? Of the knowledge of God's righteousness and His judgment and His justice and His righteousness and His anger towards sin. Very much. But this worship fear also knows something else. It knows forgiveness. It knows His mercy. It knows His love. It knows because of God's eternal sovereign plan, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who willingly humbled Himself by dying on the cross to redeem His enemies from slavery and death. Fearing God is acknowledging I am a sinner. That I once was an enemy of God. But it doesn't leave us there. It, it leaves us to a deeper, greater, new relationship with Him that only He could provide through His Son where we know now, if you are in Christ, we know now that God always says first, I love you. That's the knowledge and truth that draws us in closer to God. 
Do you, do you see the difference between kind of that shallow response to this deeper response of God's love? That it's cloaked in the sense of the gospel, that's wrapped in the gospel. That we know that we are sinners and that we know that God knows that we are sinners and yet still, despite that, he sent his son. That we don't run and hide. Running and hiding isn't believing the gospel. That has more to do with the fear of man. Fearing man. Making us a slaves to them. But if you fear God, then you will be free. Because listen, when you fear God, which is ultimate, what else is there to fear? What else? I mean, come up, I mean, I mean, maybe we can do this in our Q&A time, right at the end. Bring it up. What, what, what else do we have? A train wreck. No, God's sovereign over that. Other people. ISIS. A guy coming here to shoot us. What do we have to the fear? I would love to tell you several stories that illustrate this point, but I'm going to stick with one, and it's one that we're familiar with. And it's the story of Martin Luther. When, when Luther stood up in the Reformation time, right, he, a couple of years have passed after the, the nailing of the 95 Theses on the, the church door, um, he was brought before uh, the, the Diet of Worms, and, and, and there was, was he was kind of being put on trial um, for the things that he believed about uh, Reformational theology, the things that we, we, we love and are so thankful for. Um, he stood accused in this courtroom, just kind of since that, um, before uh, John Eck, the Archbishop of, of Terry, the, uh, all the princes, and the Holy Roman Empire uh, Emperor himself. Am I right on that? Was he there? He stood there before the most powerful people in the world without the Pope himself being there. But the Archbishop represented him. And he was asked, he was asked, do you recant of your heresies in your writings? And did you know the first time that after he was asked that question that Luther timidly responded, can I have more time? And they did. They gave him 24 hours to consider. Here's what um, Roland Bayton said, the great Luther historian, about that moment. He said, anyone who recalls Luther's tremors at his first Mass, so when he was still a practicing monk and he was doing his first Mass, he, he messed up and he was very scared of this, of, of holding the elements and things like that. He was very scared. So this is kind of the way Luther is. Right? His first Mass will scarcely so interpret his hesitation, right? So remember this hesitation we just talked about. Just as then he wished to flee from the altar, the altar of when he was doing the first Mass, so now he too was terrified before God to give an answer to the emperor. He was terrified. And that, that night and that day for the next 24 hours he spent in prayer before the Lord. Now, we know the end of the story. Right, you, you, you remember that he once again stood before all these people and was asked, do you recant the heresies of your writings? And, and he had this wonderful line that he gave. But at the end he says, uh, here I stand, I can do no other. Unless I'm convinced otherwise, here I stand. By the word of God and by my conscience, 
here I stand. So why was it? What, what drove him to be able to stand? This didn't just happen out of a vacuum. Luther felt fear here. He, he knew the, the gravity of this statement. This is, could end his life. It could kill the Reformation. What was it? Luther had a towering fear of God. A fear that was bigger than the archbishop. A fear that was bigger than the princes, bigger than the emperor, and bigger than the pope. There was nothing that they could do to him that was greater than God. You see, the person that fears God is the person that fears nothing else. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Grow then in the fear of the Lord. Everything in this life, everything in this world, the flesh, the world, the devil, all conspire together that oppose the fear of God and wants us to fear man, wants us to fear each other. But what Jesus is telling us, guys, it's like a haunted house. Turn the lights on and it looks completely different. It looks like a joke. In the reality of the light of the knowledge of the, the bigness and greatness of, of God our Father, turn the lights on with that. And it no longer makes it as scary. God has given us these things to grow in. He's given us creation. Creation in the sense that, that is fearful and powerful and destructive. Oh, what an example this week. What a fearful thing, powerful storm. But that's not enough. That's not the only thing God has given us to see his fear, or the fear of the Lord. It's good, but it's insufficient. See God's majesty, his holiness, his justice, his wrath, his mercy, his righteousness, and his grace in the scripture. We grow in the fear of God by being in the scripture knowing the Scriptures, searching the Scriptures. You want to know where Luther had the courage to stand? It was from the Scripture. Every one of those things I just mentioned are all flowing throughout the Scripture, and it all culminates in the cross. He also gave us His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit, so that, that, that is bearing witness in us of God's glory as adopted, as sons, and, and is, is showing us to cry out as Abba, to Abba Father. It's then, when we learn to know that our God, our Father, is more loving and more powerful than where we can ever imagine. And Jesus illustrates in verses 6 and 7, what I just said. The sparrow, five sparrows sold for two pennies. Not one of them is forgotten by God. God's providential care over, crea over creation here. And even, even the hairs of our head are numbered. Fear not, you're more valuable than the birds. Again, a little bit of humor here. A little bit, a little bit of humor here that is to comfort us. If God cares for a bunch of birds that are outside right now, how much more valuable and how much more does he care for you than them? How much does he know you 
and remember you than a bunch of birds. The birds are great. The birds are beautiful. I like to hear them sing. But God sees us and knows that we are remembered. He remembers us. He knows us and that we are more valuable than them. More valuable as his children and as his elect. Fearing God is not meant for our crushing. Fearing God is not meant for our destruction. Jesus already acknowledges that he could have done that. We all deserve to be cast into hell. It's what we deserve. It's why we have shame. But the fear of God is for our joy. Because he always remembers us. He knows us deeper and clearer than anyone else. And if that torments you this morning, that he loves us contrary to that. He loves us contrary to to our sinfulness. Still sending his son to die for us. How much more of a point of value can you put on that? That he would send his son to be your substitute. Why fear man? What can it do for you? What does it even matter when we know the word of God and what God thinks about you? If your confidence, assurance, your identity is not tied up with how people think of you, but rather is rooted in the work of Christ and the cross, then then these verses about birds and pennies and hairs on your head will completely make sense and comfort you, and encourage you. When we are tempted to doubt, when we're tempted to flee from what we know is true, what we know is right, and what God has proclaimed about us. That we're remembered and known and valued as beloved beloved sons and daughters. What does the fear of God look like? We're coming to an end here. What does the fear of God look like? It looks like loving good and hating evil. Right? It looks like trusting God. A trust that, that, that fears Him. A trust that is in awe of Him. A trust that is in reverence of Him. And in that trust, fear, all reverence, we obey. And, and here is why this is good. Let me, let me kind of bring this down to reality and why the fear of God is a good thing. So if it's if it's, if it's a loving good and hating evil, imagine what it would be like. Imagine what it would be like, brothers and sisters, just think about this, to truly hate your sin. I mean truly hate your sin. Hate your own first, and then hate the sin of others. If that's the case, what would happen? What would happen in our disagreements? What would happen in your marriage when you disagree and an argument is about to ensue? That if we truly hated our sin, the argument wouldn't really start, would it? It wouldn't escalate. It wouldn't turn into yelling. It wouldn't turn into bitterness or hate and someone stomping their foot and walking out of the room crying. Ask me how I know. 
never mind. Why? Because we would be too busy listening to the other person. We would be too busy asking for forgiveness and recognizing and realizing our own selfishness and our own sinfulness. Check this out. What, what would gossip turn into if we truly hated sin, hated our own, we hated others? What would gossip turn into? Gossip would turn into public confession. It would turn over to public contrition over sin. If we truly feared God, this is what would happen in our lives. What about when someone else sins against us? There would be no longer bitterness and hatred, but we would cover that sin in love and humility. Or we would confront them in the same spirit. The fear of God isn't just an idea that sounds good from the Old Testament. The fear of God is what frees us in bondage from the slavery of the sin of, or the fear of man. But it changes everything in our relationships and the dynamics of our life. But also, hear this, for those who are dealing with these things, it simplifies life. It simplifies all of life. Not to worry about living in fear of others, being terrified of what they may think of us. No, we, we live under the awesome presence of God. And, and, and listen, we know in the fear of God, we know we can joyfully know that under His gaze, we know we're exposed. We know we're naked. We know we went to school in our underwear and God's there. And we know that we deserve to be cast into hell. But also I know under the same gaze, there's acceptance because of the blood of Christ. And I'm accepted and I'm given His righteousness. And under His gaze, he, he sees me covered from guilt and shame. That shame and guilt that I walk and I want no one to see it. I'm walking on glass because I want no one to see it. God knows. And under that gaze, I'm covered from that shame and under that guilt. Because the Father has forgiven me. Because He has cleansed me. And through that, through that, he says he will glorify his name through you. Under his gaze, there's providential and sovereign protection and power that nothing can ultimately destroy you. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It is under that gaze of the bridegroom who looks at his bride and he lavishes love and his best gifts on her. He has given us his very presence. He has given us himself, his Holy Spirit. It's his gaze, brothers and sisters, that transforms us. It expels the fear of man. Not needed anyone for our selfish desires and not anyone now to, to fulfill us. We don't need anyone to do these things for us because I know God loves me. And I know that that love is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in substitutionary atonement in His righteousness that is imputed upon me. And then we as a gospel culture, a church, we kind of get to stir all that up and live together in that light. 
no longer needing others. But under that gaze of being free from the fear of man, what a blessing then that we can be to be people that live out as the priesthood of Christ, the blessings of the Lord. 1 John 4.18, we close with this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, which Christ exhorts. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what comfort and strength, encouragements you have given to us through your word, through Christ. The Lord casts out fear the fear of man, how real that is. How real that is. But what's even a greater reality is the fear of God. Would you show us, show your people what it means to fear you? Freely acknowledging our sin also knowing your great love. Lord, help us to be a people that fear you. That fear you. That no longer those things we just talked about imagine what it could be like. But that we would see the reality of that within our own lives, within our own families, and jobs, work, whatever it may be, may be a reality in this church for your glory and for our joy. Amen.